As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Bugs Bunny, thanks for being on the Gary Hour. Oh, I didn't see you there. You all right? You seem a little sketchy. Let me take these off. People are talking, and they don't like that you're hanging out with Keith Richards. What? Who said that? Daffy? I'm not going to say who, but people saw you guys behind the dumpster. <laughs> Can't get no yes. Yeah, you guys were pretty high. <laughs> we're tighter than a pair of wet canvas kicks. He's my dog. That's exactly what people are worried about. <laughs> you know, we've been called the perfect pair. Not so perfect. You guys barely even talk. You just do bad things. We finish each other's sentences. And after that, there's uh, 40 minutes of me snoring. I was there. <sighs> That's all, folks. Oh, no, it isn't. Welcome to episode 11. Yeah. This week we talk to a man of many hands. A man with much motivation. A man with the name of Jeffrey Gurian. Who the hell is Jeffrey Gurian? Go to Comedy Matters TV and you'll see. He's written three books. He's kind of the Where's Waldo of comedy. He's also been a practicing dentist while writing jokes for many of the greats. We're going to hear all kinds of stories. We're going to hear how he overcame stuttering and stage fright. It's a good one. Enjoy me, Matt Kaplan, and Jeffrey Gurian. didn't stand up, and sometimes I feel like I'm spreading myself too thin. So you're kind of an inspiration because you seem to grasp all these things with no problem. Well, you know, people like us really don't have a choice. Um, if you have a lot of interests, it's really hard to eliminate something mm-hmm. that's a very strong part of your life. I was writing comedy while I was in practice. You know, I was writing for Rodney and Joan Rivers. Ro- no, 
Rodney was the first big star that I wrote for, and and I had a, a, a cosmetic dental practice, and my nurse had strict instructions, never interrupt me except for show business. <laughs> so she'd come into the room while I'd be working with somebody, and she'd be like, Dr. Rivers is on the phone, <laughs> Dr. Lewis is calling, you know. The only one that no one believed was Dr. Dangerfield. No one, no, no one ever went. But then I could leave the room and take the call, and I'd be writing jokes while I'm working in the office, and doing all these things um you know i so, thought of a, a title for your autobiography yeah laughing gas sure why not <laughs> why not cindy adams once said that's uh, she said uh that she figured out my connection she goes i make people laugh to see if they have any teeth missing <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah and then i use i don't need laughing gas that's the thing but it's funny because I, I never fooled around in the office I, I wasn't one of those guys who tells jokes i don't think patients they want you to be in a good mood and have a sense of humor, but mm. some people get carried away. Like I dislocated my shoulder once and somebody must have told my physician that you should joke around with your patients. And I'm like, schmuck, but not while they're in pain. You wait till they're better. Because I called him up and I told him I had to go to the hospital. I dislocated my shoulder and he said, don't make a habit of this. Right, right. And I told him afterwards that was not funny. You know, tell me afterwards when the pain's gone, not while I'm fainting from the pain, you know. You seem to be able to compartmentalize these different things really easily. Which is weird for me because I have really bad ADD and I face so much confusion. And it's amazing. When I was tested for it, mm -hmm. the doctor who tested me said, he said, it's unbelievable that you graduated towards the top of your class. He goes, you must have had to work 10 times as hard as everyone else. In college? In dental school. Okay. In college and dental school. And I said, yeah, I did. You know, uh, I also battled a severe stutter. I stuttered very badly until I was in my 20s and mm -hmm. beyond. And um, I developed a cure for stuttering, and I work with stutterers to teach them how not to stutter. I had to change how I thought. And mm -hmm. I talk about that because now when I perform and I'm on the radio, I listen to my voice all the time while I'm speaking. I'm very aware of my voice. Yeah. And I'm grateful every day that I don't stutter. I was given the grace to figure out how to I let hear, that go. I hear no trace of stuttering yeah. at all. And even stutterers who do, you know, what usually a stutterer can tell. Mm-hmm. I was able to eliminate it completely. And to, to be honest, with you, it took me years, but I could start stuttering tomorrow, but I refuse to let myself. I won't allow it because it's a, you know, oh. I created it. Yeah. It's not a true disability for me. Most stutterers don't know, but they can go into a room by themselves and not stutter. Mm -hmm. And what I tell them is, well, a man with a limp limps in every room of his house. He can't go into a room by himself, close the door, and stop limping. If, mm -hmm. he, if he could, he'd stay in there all day. A stutterer can go into a room by themselves and say every word that's difficult for them to say to someone else. They can say it perfectly when they're alone, which means there's nothing wrong with your voice, your vocal cords, your speech mechanism. It's coming from your head. From your mind, yeah. And so any thought that you create, you can uncreate. Mm-hmm. And it works with all kinds of obstacles in so your you, life, as you long as you know you have the power. Yeah, so you believe in mind over matter. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And I trained my mind. I was determined that I was not going to live my life as a stutterer. Yeah. Because my parents took me for speech therapy and no one was able to help me. And because a lot of speech pathologists, they're, they're very open about saying that they don't know the true cause of stuttering. Mm -hmm. To me, it's an emotional and psychological problem, not physical, as I gave you the example of a man who limps. And, um, and I couldn't change my DNA, so it couldn't be genetic. It had to do with me working on myself and developing confidence and self-esteem and taking what must have been 
an, infer an inferiority complex and turning it into what I would classify as a superiority complex, not mm -hmm. to feel better than other people, but just to feel even so I feel can show up, to feel good about myself, yeah. to give me the confidence to speak to you mm -hmm. and not feel that I needed to stutter. So you were a stutterer from as from a about child? Six, years, six, seven years old is when it started, which meant that I, you know, most people start speaking when they're two. So from two to seven, I was fine. Then all of a sudden, what happened in my life that made me start to stutter? Something happened to me. It wasn't something I was born with. Do you know what it was? Have you looked into it? Yeah, I, but one of the things that I teach uh, stutterers is that it isn't important to ever come, you know, it isn't important to ever come up with something that you feel, well, this is the exact cause of why I stutter. It's important to look at all the possibilities. Mm -hmm. My mom was a perfectionist. I remember her telling me she wanted mm. me to be perfect. Yeah, too much pressure and, on a kid. And I used to play the piano as a little child, and they'd make me perform. And speaking is kind of a performance. And it's very hard for little children to rebel against their parents. You mm -hmm. kind of do what they tell you to do. Yeah. But in your own way, you can rebel. So one of the possibilities is... In your head, you're saying, I'll show you how non-perfect I can be. Mm -hmm. I won't even be able to speak properly. And then you develop a stutter to drive your parents crazy. Interesting. You know, to try to get even with them for making you a perfectionist. And to cut yourself some slack. Yeah, exactly. Because people don't expect as much from you. They tend to feel sorry for you when you have that kind of a disability. And, um, you know, I lived with that for so many years. And it's a horrible thing. And so... They make fun of it in movies. You know, people always make fun of people who stutter. It's sure. a horrible disability to have. Yeah. And I hate when I see that. Mm -hmm. And because it's very much a part of me to this day. Now, the day goes by when I don't think about it. And yeah. again, I'm grateful to be able to talk about it because there are people out there who are listening to your show mm -hmm. who either stutter or know somebody who does. And it's important that they know that there's hope for them, that they do not have to go through their whole lives with that kind of a problem. Or they could even relate to it with a different affliction because there's so many afflictions that are mind-made. Exactly, yeah. And and so it's a much bigger story. It's about overcoming obstacles. You know, mm -hmm. there there's, um, there's a spiritual aspect to it too. There's something called the serenity prayer. And the serenity prayer says, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the most important line, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. If I wasn't, given the grace or the wisdom to know that I could conquer stuttering, I'd still be stuttering today. Mm -hmm. But I was able to figure out that there was really nothing wrong with me. Right. And so there's a thing, there's a, an important concept in life about acceptance. We have to accept ourselves the way we are or else it'll drive you crazy. Everybody has something about them that they would change if they could. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. And, but there are some things that are not changeable and you have to accept yourself for it. I, I totally believe in mind over matter because I grew up with a father who's a Christian scientist. Oh, okay. You so, know this religion? Well, I, I had relatives that were in that religion. They don't take any, they don't go to doctors, they don't believe right. in medicine mm -hmm. at all. And I've seen my father with a stroke. He had a stroke and half of his face was completely melted paralyzed? right down the center. Yeah. yeah, totally paralyzed. And it's freaky to, for, for a son to see. Sure. But of course, he wasn't going to go to a doctor, and he prayed it all away. He's had a root canal done with no no. It left him. He he got rid of the effects of the stroke. Got rid of the effects See, of the that stroke. That is amazing because no loss of anything. He's totally healthy and fine. And it's, how long did it take him to do that? I would say about a week and complete. Maybe that's all. Yeah. A week to it's, lose paralysis. It's pretty. Wow. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's, he even yeah, that's it's, miraculous. It is, and you know. 
I'm not a big uh, believer in God in that sense, but uh, it really made me believe in mind over matter. For well, sure. I'll tell you something. I'm open to the concept. I'm open, you know, for someone to say to you that they don't believe that story is arrogant. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, I'm I saw it. Yeah. I'm, I'm open to all positive thoughts mm -hmm. because how does it diminish you? I'm open to the concept of God. You can call it nature or the universe, whatever you want to call it. You don't have to think of that it's an old man in the sky with a beard. Right. But it, I think it's important to grasp the concept that there's some force that's greater than us that has to do with how our lives go. Because if you think it's up to you to do everything, it drives you crazy. Cause and then we've you all... Sec then you second-guess yourself. Yeah. You start to think, I should have done this in the past. I could have done that. And it's important to understand that you're you're on a path. And we've all heard of placebo pills. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And they work. Exactly. A lot of times they work. So your mind is very powerful, more than you know. You know, look, even even non-placebo pills, a lot of people, if they have a headache or something, right when they put the pill in their mouth, they feel better. But guess what, buddy? It hasn't even it gone has, into It couldn't even or, start to take effect yet. Yeah. yeah. And it works with all kinds of things when in terms of performance mm -hmm. you talk about stage fright and fear you know for many years it kept me off the stage i wrote for some of the biggest stars but i never had the nerve to get on stage because you were still stuttering and no because i was nervous to perform mm -hmm. because i already knew too many people you know if you're brand new and you go out on stage and you don't do well okay so that's part of the game mm. you have to start out but once you know so many people in the comedy world it adds a lot of tension to it when you're getting up on stage and they already know you in one way or another. And like when I, in, when I uh, interviewed Jim Gaffigan for uh, my book, he told me he suffered with stage fright for about six years where he got physically ill before he went on stage. Mm -hmm. Physically ill. And he just worked through it until it went away. He used the mind over matter to conquer that. Yeah. A lot of people never go on stage because of that fear, you know, or they never do anything in life. Fear can hold you back. And on the other side... And People that are too confident and relaxed on stage, there's often something missing. Sometimes that can a little, as well. a little anxiety keeps you on the edge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the audiences feel that. I think. Well, well it, it's normal to feel some anxiety, some tension, and to use that as a performer to give you extra energy when you mm -hmm. go up on stage. But the crippling kind of fear, the fear that stops you from doing anything, from accomplishing anything, that's the kind of fear that I'm talking about. And a lot of people face it. You know, people's greatest fear in a book of fears, people, everybody's greatest fear is public speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More right? than death itself, they say. Yeah, 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 right. So every comic, I mean, I respect every single person that goes on stage, which is why in my column, I never write anything bad about somebody. If someone has a bad set, mm -hmm. If it's a not a fun show, I just eliminate it. I don't write about it because I respect the fact that they went up on stage and they gave it a shot. They right. tried to do it. You right. know, I hate the concept of critics. Yeah. Who is one person to criticize, you know, like film critics? What kind of job is that? Where you, you know, that's your whole life is criticizing what other people do. Right. Yeah. To me, it's, it's very weird. You know, well, critics are often stifled artists in some way. Very often. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're just frustrated people. And so I don't believe in doing that. If I see something that I don't like, I, I leave it out. That's all. So you went through all of high school. And uh, college as a, stutterer. as a stutterer. Yeah. And then yeah. what made you make that change and really fight to uh, change that well, about yourself? I remember very clearly, I made myself run for the president of my freshman class in college. I went to Hunter College. As a I, stutterer. You said, I want to be president. Yeah. I always, I always confronted my fear. 
It's one thing, even as a child, I had a lot of fears. I was afraid of the dark. Mm-hmm. And I remember very clearly making myself walk in the dark. Seven, eight years old, I made myself go in a dark room as scared as I was mm-hmm. because I hated the fact that I had so many fears. This is great. I used to have a lot of bad dreams too. And I, and, you know, and I dreamt I had two grandmothers, very loving grandmothers. Mm-hmm. And I used to have this recurrent dream that one of my grandmothers would take me into the basement near the boiler room, which was really scary to me as like a seven-year-old kid. And she would leave me there. And I had this dream over and over again. And it disturbed me so much that one night in my dream, I said to her, you're not my grandmother. This is just a dream. Now, I told that to psychiatrists that I've met since yeah. as an adult, and they said to me that's a very rare thing for a child to be able to do, mm-hmm. to have the presence, to be aware that you're dreaming and say something within the dream. Right. My memory is that that broke me from having that dream again. Well, you're having but, a lucid uh, dream, which is super cool. I've had one of those in my life so far. Where you actually know that you're in the dream. Yeah. Like you say, I'm dreaming now. And I'm controlling the And you're dream. controlling the dream. Yeah. yeah. It's a very weird thing. Uh, unfortunately, but once the, you, you have that realization, you often just wake up because you realize, oh, this is just a dream. At least that's what happens to me. But it's so funny that I remember saying it. It must have been such a powerful experience to mm-hmm. me. I'm a little child and it's still in my mind that I said that to her. You're not my grandmother. This is just a dream. So that was and almost so, the first time you fought your fear and took it head that's, on. I remember. Then when I was in college, I was so disturbed about my stuttering that I, you know, I came from a high school where I knew a lot of people and I was voted like most talented. You know, they, they do that bullshit in your senior year that the you know, senior celebrities were. Uh-huh. It's a popularity contest. Yeah. I knew a lot of kids. I never felt popular because I was two years younger than everybody else. I skipped a couple of grades and I, um, because cause you were smart and excellent in, in those days they had something called the SPs special progress and I started school when I was four and a half and I skipped the eighth grade mm. so I was like 16 in college right what's the rush why do parents <laughs> do well that? because in those days people didn't think about you know the social aspects yeah, exactly. of putting a kid in when you're so much younger than everybody else um, it just seemed like the thing to do. It was like yeah. a big honor if they chose you for the SPs, you know? I don't yeah. even think they do that anymore, where you skip grades. A lot but, of times parents now want their kids to start a little later, so they're a little older. Than yeah, them. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, I, so again, so I'm 16 in college. So I make up my mind that I'm going to run for the president of the class, but I couldn't say my name. So I had other kids be like my campaign managers and they'd introduce me to kids that I didn't know and they say this is Jeffrey Gurian and he's so running gangster. he's running for president <laughs> would you vote for him and stuff and once I got some words out I could speak you know it wasn't mm-hmm. like I couldn't get anything out but I would really stutter badly and I could never say my name Gurian was a killer most stutterers can't say their names huh because your name is your identity and if you're not happy with your identity you can't really tell people who you are so is stuttering more of a self-esteem issue to me, it has to, it's tied in with confidence and self-esteem and how you see yourself. And there's a lot that goes into it. But what happened was I told myself if I could win this election, I won't have to stutter anymore because it'll show me that people like me. So somewhere I felt like people did not like me right. and I didn't fit in. And so I won the election. I'm president of the freshman class and I still stuttered. And it was a great lesson for me because it taught me that outside validation doesn't work. Right. It doesn't matter how many people in your life tell you you're fabulous and wonderful and talented and whatever. It matters what you think of yourself. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that I decided that I was going to work on myself. And I started taking out books 
psychology books and books on speech and just reading about things to try to open my mind to see what thoughts I was holding that were not valid for me. Mm-hmm. Because all of us, we create our thoughts. At and this our, young thoughts, of age, you're, yeah, you're looking yeah, into I'm it. Also look, all yeah, by yourself. All by, all by myself. No, there was nobody to help me. Yeah. And I worked on it for literally for years. I became obsessed with curing myself mm-hmm. and letting go of the stutter. Mm-hmm. And I used anger, I used affirmations, I reprogrammed my thinking. Mm-hmm. I took positive affirmations, like there is no need to stutter. I, I refuse to stutter. I, I will not stutter. I, I have no need to stutter. And I said it in many different ways. And I would say it the way they would brainwash soldiers, like as prisoners of war. Right. They repeat something over and over till you go crazy. Uh-huh. I did that with, with positive affirmations. I believe in using affirmations to retrain your thinking. And I was literally obsessed. From morning to night, I would just focus on giving myself positive affirmations. I, I would see people and say, they don't have to stutter. Why do I have to stutter? You know, I'd this, see- is, this is interesting because as someone so entrenched in comedy, where self-deprecation always works, how do you combat those two things together? You're giving yourself affirmations and trying to build yourself up, but comedians often knock themselves down well that's an excellent question because when i first started performing i think that it it kept the audience from laughing at some of the things that i said Mm -hmm. because i would come out on stage with too much confidence right like don't you dare laugh at me Mm -hmm. and i realized that i haven't thought about it until you asked me that because i started thinking about that have i built up my sense of confidence too much because comedians on stage they do a lot of self-deprecating stuff as i do now and you kind of come across as a loser so that the audience is laughing with you and at you at the same time. Mm-hmm. They know that you're, they know that you have some semblance of cool because you're up on stage and you're making them laugh. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you're putting yourself down because if you look too good, they're not going to laugh. They're going to turn against you. Yeah. You can't, it's like it's hard for a beautiful girl. She's not going to talk about how hard it is to get a date. Right. The audience isn't going to believe it. Right. You come out in a gorgeous suit and you're like, look like you're the king of the world. The audience is not going to laugh as much as they are if it's, you if you portray yourself as a loser. It's kind of something I hate about human nature. It's it, to me, it's like the people yeah. want to watch the public hanging. Exactly. Yeah. There's part of us that is weird like that. There's a part of humanity. That's why the roast thing is so weird. They've gotten very mean spirited. Mm-hmm. People want blood these days. Yeah. The audience wants you know to tear each other apart, and the comics don't really want to do it. At mm-hmm. The roast battles. I'm actually writing about it in my column this week. You know, I have this column in the Interrobang, and mm-hmm. I cover the comedy scene yeah. in New York and often in L.A. as well. And um, roast battles are, are popular these days. But a lot of the comics who go up against each other like each other as friends, and they don't really want to go in on each other. Right. The other night, I was asking a F- Phil Hanley went up with Gary Veter, mm-hmm. and their jokes are very sharp because they're both funny guys and mm-hmm. they're good writers. But they both made fun of each other with a, a modeling joke uh, about each of them was a, a model uh-huh. you know, in some way. And I realized it kicked in. They couldn't possibly have done that coincidentally. They had to have it prepared. And I spoke to them afterwards. And they said, yeah, we like each other so much. We didn't really want to be mean to each other. So we ran our jokes past each other. Right. And we wanted to create... Uh, just uh, an entertaining bit for the audience. Well, it is It is also weird times culturally because everything is getting very So politically soft. correct. PC. Oh, man. No very matter nice. what you say, mm-hmm. there's there are people out there who cannot wait to be offended. Mm-hmm. 
and it's really affecting comedy in so many ways because but it's also it's also my brother has my older brother has uh children and nowadays uh one of them just entered junior high middle school yeah and i remember middle school the first day when you get your food at the cafeteria and then you go to sit down and you're like oh my god where do i sit and you see all the groups and the clicks and now there's assigned seating and you know it's these days of like everyone gets a trophy everyone's invited to everyone's birthday party these mm -hmm. popularity contests like who most funniest or most uh able to like, succeed that yeah. doesn't exist it doesn't any, exist anymore yeah. well that's cool in a way it's good if it doesn't take away people's um desire to do better mm. um right there's always going to be some you know you want to have the incentive to improve yourself mm -hmm. if everybody passes you know i don't know how great that is i think right. you need to work hard and there has to be some incentive but it is a much you know, more kid glove time that thing about clicks i went to a high school reunion so many years and in recent years i wouldn't even say how many years went by but so i just wanted to see and i was it was a sad thing i was sorry that i went but <laughs> but that's what it, facebook is good for <laughs> you don't exactly. have to get out of your house <laughs> but when it came time to have dinner check this out it was the same clicks as in high school the kids who thought they were cool who are now like fat bald men yeah, you know miserable they all you know I refused to participate in that because mm -hmm. I could see what was happening. There were the nerds and the jocks and this and that. I went to a table by myself and I sat down all alone at this big table. And don't you know, every one of those kids from the cool clique came down and sat with me at my table to ask me, hey, what's going on, Jeffrey, this and that. And I thought to myself, man, I wish I knew this in high school. Were you afraid you're going to start stuttering because, again? No, but I just felt like a loser and I didn't want to participate in that. Am I going to be at the cool kids table? It's still, it was in their minds after all these years. Yeah. All these years, it never left. They remembered who they hung with and those clicks and stuff like that. And it would be cool if that didn't happen. So I didn't know about it, assigned seating. That's great. Yeah. At least in my nephew's uh, No, school. that's very cool because it takes away that stigma because that's a hard time to be alive. You know, I would say if high school was the best time of your life, you'd probably kill yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because yeah. who 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 fit in in high school? I mean, really, if you think that that was such a great time, if you're reminiscing, boy, I wish I was back in high school. Mm -hmm. It's well, fucking horrible. Most people don't go through the the self improvement and journey that someone like yourself has. Most people do stick in that high school mentality and never really get much further than that. Unfortunately, that's a sad fact. Yeah, it's really a sad fact. It's like look. When I meet people that come to New York from another state or another country, I really admire the strength that it takes to do that. Most people stay where they're born. Absolutely. They don't even leave. They stay in the town where they're born. They marry the high school sweetheart, whatever, you know, and it's like, I don't get it. And you know what? A lot of these things are... I don't get it. It's the name of your show, right? <laughs> That's right. Every Friday night. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of these things are American afflictions. Like uh, when I was playing in a band, we did a lot of touring in Europe. And I remember spending lots of time in Europe, you know, well, mostly Western Europe. But um, we were watching 30 Rock in Europe. And watching 30 Rock and being drenched in their culture, it wasn't funny. It was like, it just looked like American s mental sickness. Really? So interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. But neurotic. It also uh, explains. Absorbed. I didn't know about your music background, so it explains the long hair. Because everyone thinks <laughs> I'm in the music business. You're as much longer than mine. I used to have hair much longer than that. But 
it's interesting how people want to put you into a category. Oh, yeah. You ever notice that? Totally. People feel so much better when they can put you in a box. Mm -hmm. They want to feel that they know you and this is where you belong. And I never fit into a category. And it makes people uncomfortable when they can't do that. Yeah. I mean, I thought when I first met you, I thought you were a music guy as well. Yeah, everybody. My my parents insist I'm in the music business. (laughs) (laughs) No one has any idea what I do. They're like, what the fuck is it? What does he do? Didn't you play piano when you were six? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I I did. I played piano for 10 years. I took lessons for 10 years. I could have been in music, but it wasn't wasn't a choice. I never considered show business as an occupation when mm-hmm. I was a kid. I grew up in the Bronx. It was very, very middle class. You know, it was like if you played tennis, you were like fucking royalty. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like it was a big deal to drive to Florida on vacation. That was the big thing. <laughs> Men would stand in the street waxing their car. That was the big entertainment for the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So I certainly didn't think of, you know, show business as a possible occupation, even though I was writing comedy since I was 12 years old. You were writing. I was so always writing. Were you writing uh, jokes or sketches? I was writing crazy stuff for the amusement of my friends. Like mm-hmm. I did, it was like very Monty Python kind of stuff. It's how I got started. As a matter of fact, this week I had the the pleasure of sitting down with Alan's Weibeld. You know who Alan is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The award winning writer, director, SNL. producer. Well, he started on SNL. He he co-created it's gary shandling show he Uh, wrote 700 sundays with billy crystal mm -hmm. he's worked on martin short's show with him on broadway Mm -hmm. he's you know with castle rock movies books he's an award-winning author and he gave me my start in comedy Mm -hmm. in the early days of snl and he came over he has a, a new book that i helped him promote uh, and he came over to my place to do an interview, kind of like this. Well, I, I imagine as a stutterer that being able to write comedy was very relieving because you can clearly put your ideas down without the stutter. Yeah, and that's probably why I wrote so much. A lot of stutterers have a lot to say when mm-hmm. I work with them and they write. It's almost sad because they can't say it, so they write it. Mm-hmm. And you can feel the depth of their emotion. But... The way I met Alan's Weibel, I was writing these, you asked like what I used to write when I was a kid. Yeah. I used to write these faux news things that are like, you know, like crimes, like several men were arrested for smearing cream cheese on the ankles of elderly women who wore their stockings rolled down like bagels. <laughs> Did you ever see the old women with the stockings on their ankles? It looks like bagels to me. Right. So I got my grandmother, who was such a kind person, and she made believe she had a Jewish accent and she let me roll down her stockings and put cream cheese on her ankles. And she did this great interview as an old Jewish woman, Mrs. Ogoyim, if you know that word. And she said she just came from Ireland and then uh, she goes, you know, we have two kinds of stockings, one for milk and one for meat. <laughs> she goes, and this crazy man, he smeared cream cheese on my fleshika stockings, on my meat stockings and I can't get it off. And I zoom in with the camera, my Super 8 camera on her ankles, and there's cream cheese on her ankles. So I bring this up to Saturday Night Live. I'm driving a pimp mobile in those days. I pull up to Saturday Night In those days, you could pull right up to 30 Rock. There was right. nothing like that. There was no terrorism. It was, yeah. you fucking pull up. So I'm in this Mandarin orange Cadillac that had been made for one of the Isley brothers, <laughs> wow. which I thought was very appropriate. And I put a, a Rolls Royce grill on it. No white man ever drove a car like that, trust me. And... And I pull up to 30 Rock, and I throw the doorman some money, and I tell him, Lorne Michaels is expecting me. Nice. Which is a total lie, of mm-hmm. course. 
but they had no reason to doubt me in that car with the Rolls Royce grill. And I made believe I'm on the phone. It was like a CB radio, like a phone. Anyway, I sneak in and I get into the elevator. I go past security and I get up to the 17th floor. And Alan's Weibel is playing handball on the wall with Neil Levy. They were all just kids. Saturday Night Live sure. was new. Yeah. Neil Levy was Lauren Michaels' cousin who was a producer on the show. And I tell him about my films and he watches them and not only the cream cheese, which he remembers to this day, all these years later, that image cannot leave his mind. He goes, Jeffrey, I'll never forget cream cheese on the ankles. I think I'm right there with him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I took a memory class once and the guy said, if you want people to remember something, juxtapose two things that people never saw together before yep. and they'll never forget it. <laughs> and I go, that's my comedy. That's what I do. I had a thing called The Masters of Disguise. There were two master criminals who disguised themselves as inanimate objects to commit their crimes. <sighs> so it starts with two men disguised as coats rob a hat store. They come in over the arms of two other men, and they say, just act natural like wear your coats and nobody will get hurt. <laughs> and police draw pictures of the perpetrators, and it's two coats, you know, and, uh, and you know, so... It escalated into many crimes. Two men disguised as a pair of eyeglasses rob a local optometrist. They come in on another man's face. This is giving me Woody, Woody Allen bananas well, flashes. Well, Woody read my earliest stuff. He was my inspiration, and he literally read my material. We mm -hmm. spent two nights together, and, and he encouraged me to make films out of it, which mm -hmm. I did. And, and thank you for saying that, because Woody was my idol and my inspiration in the early days when he was doing stand-up. Mm -hmm. And so... I did all these films, you know, and uh, two men disguised as jewelry, rob a local shop. They come in on a, on a woman's dress. Again, I used my grandmother, and she said, I don't know what's happening. I'm looking in this jewelry store window, when all of a sudden the jewelry that I had on became so heavy that I had to stoop over. And I said to her, well, when did you realize that they were men and not jewelry? <laughs> she said, one of the robbers was disguised as a brooch. And the other was a stick pin, she said. And, and uh, uh, an alert security guard came over and wrestled the stick pin to the ground, but unfortunately he got away. Now, I went to a bank to try to get a security guard to wrestle with this stick pin. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I went into a bank where they knew me as a dentist because it was in my neighborhood. Okay, what, how old are you around this time? Just 20s, to give context. Okay. 20, 25, 26, I guess. I don't know. I went into a bank and I, I couldn't get the words out. I'm trying because he said to me, hello, doctor. And I said, I want, I'd like you to be in a movie. And every time I'm trying to tell this straight looking guy that I wanted him to wrestle with a stick pin, I couldn't say the words. I just broke down with, I was laughing. <laughs> fucking tears are running down my face. He didn't do the movie because he said the bank wouldn't let him do it. But, that's what I used to do. I used to go around and I would get people. So Alan Zweibel saw this, mm -hmm. liked it enough that he didn't just give me his manager's number. He called him for me. It was a man, David Jonas, who just died about a year ago at 100 years old. Wow. He was Freddie Prinze's manager, mm -hmm. Freddie Prinze Sr. Mm -hmm. And he got him uh, Chico and the Man, mm -hmm. which was a big sitcom back in the 70s, I guess. You yeah. Know? 70s maybe 80s i guess i don't know and um so that was your first big break that's how i got started writing for comedians mm -hmm. you know it must have been earlier than that because um because i started writing in 77 and i wrote for rodney in 1980 so now how um, did you get your jokes in front of rodney dangerfield i got introduced to him through dick capri who was a good friend of his dick was a comedian who was in the show catskills on broadway okay 
an excellent comedian who lives in Florida, still performs a lot. He he was a killer on the Friars Roast. Mm-hmm. In the days when Milton Berle and Henny Youngman ruled the Friars Roast, mm-hmm. and they were like amazing, you know, unbelievable. Uh, they'll never be anything like them. And uh, Dick brought me to meet Rodney. And he's like, this kid is funny. And, you know... Uh, oh, Rodney was already well-known. He known. was still... He was, he was at the point where shortly after I started writing for him, he became too big to even perform at his own club. Mm-hmm, right. And he didn't do it anymore. But we used to hang out there for a while, mm-hmm. like 79, 80, maybe 81. I would hang out with Rodney down in his dressing room and mm-hmm. write jokes, and he'd be in his bathrobe and pajamas, which is how he hung out all the time. Smoking pot? And he would, no, he, but, he, but he, would just, he would tell me jokes, and he'd be like, hey, Jeff, uh, what's the difference between Jews and Italians? I'm like, I don't know, Rodney. What's that? He goes, they both take a leak in the sink, but the Jews take the dishes out first. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And he, yeah, and we were talking about being hip one night. You know, he goes, yeah, Jeff, you know who's hip? I'm like, who, Rodney? He goes, two guys in the village. And that's it. <laughs> that was the punchline. Two guys in the village. That's who's hip. Like, no one in the world except two guys in the village. Right, right. Told Paul Schaefer that joke. He fucking left his ass off because he's known as the hippest man in show business, Paul Schaefer. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, I mean, I had the most amazing times. It was unbelievable sitting in his dressing room with him. Of course, the hippest guy's a musician, right? <laughs> and I used to bring him tons of jokes because Rodney was very particular with his jokes. Mm-hmm. And I said, Rodney, look at all the jokes I brought. And he goes, yeah, Jeff, but they got to be funny, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's important. They got to be funny, yeah. And he was just So was he the was first amazing. person you He was wrote? the first big star I wrote for. I uh-huh. was writing for Dick Capri and Freddie Roman and all the guys that Dave Jonas was handling at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, they, when, they, when they use your jokes, they're just pay for individual jokes in those days yeah Yeah. they would pay for individual jokes and rodney used to pay 50 dollars. i remember the first time i got a check from him for 50 dollars for a joke and it was for his uh his first album no respect Uh uh-huh and the joke was and there was no political correctness in those days yeah and he would always open with like a stock line i'm all right now but last week was rough you know he says uh I only date ugly girls. He goes, I went out with this one girl who was so ugly, I bent down to pet her cat. It was the hair on her legs. <laughs> she was a very ugly girl. Was and that yours? That was mine, and that's on his album, No Respect. Nice. That was your first pay joke? Yeah, I believe so, right. from, from him, yeah. And then he did my stuff on The Tonight Show. Do you get more for an opener? If, like, if he yeah, opens he used my line on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and mm-hmm. it was such a simple line, and he loved it. And you know, when Rodney would do the Tonight Show, he wasn't a conversationalist. So he would do jokes for his performance and then he would have jokes for panel right. when they would sit on the couch. Yeah. You know? So then the line he used for his opening was, you know, again, uh, I'm all right now, but last week was rough because I bought one of those new whirlpools for my bathtub. The first night I used it, I lost three of my best ships. <laughs> and he loved it. And it was such a simple line. He goes, he used that. With Johnny Carson as his opening line. Nice. Now, in order to use that for your opening line, you have to really believe in it. I think he paid me like $250 for that one line. That's great. And in those days, that was huge. Yeah. You know? just, ha- just, I mean, he was the most fun mm-hmm. to, to write for because he had such a strong hook, the no respect mm-hmm. thing. Right. No, when you wrote that, was you were you writing it specifically for him? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, you have to write for yeah, the he person. Has, yeah, such a style that... Yeah, you know, yeah. With every comic that I wrote for, I would listen to their tapes. I would, you know, just imbue myself with their persona mm-hmm. because you have to think in their mind when you're writing for a comedian. You have to write the way they would say it in their voice. Yeah. 
And one night he let me tape his show. <laughs> he never did that, but he's like, Jeff, you could tape it so you can use it to, you know, to write more jokes for it. Uh -huh. you know? And I'm so technically incompetent that I pressed the wrong button. And at the end of the show, I wound up with a blank tape. Uh. And I didn't know how to say it to him. I, I've done that before in, 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 you know, in my past. I, I put, I plug things in the wrong place and nothing works. And I was so nervous. I did a thing with Judd Apatow about two weeks ago. Um, we were sitting backstage and we were going to shoot this thing. And, um, and I was so nervous. And then he said to me, After we do the interview, why don't you shoot my act for me? Because he's working. He's going to be at Carnegie Hall in a couple of weeks mm -hmm. for the New York Comedy Festival. And I didn't have a DP there. It was just me with my equipment. I had just figured out how to set it up to do the interview with him. And now he wanted me to tape his act. Uh -huh. And I'm like, if I fuck this up, how am I going to fuck <laughs> up Judd Apatow? That's yeah. going to be ridiculous. And I was so nervous. And I got it to work. And it came out great. And I sent it to him. <laughs> One night, I'm supposed to do Jimmy Fallon, right? And... We're at Gotham Comedy Club. It's a Friday night. And Jimmy's like, we'll meet afterwards and we'll shoot something downstairs. I'm like, great. Okay, cool. So at the end of the show, he comes out and he goes like, look, I'm really sorry. I have an emergency. I have to leave right away. Let's do it tomorrow night. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow night, Saturday night. I said, yeah, what am I going to say? No to Jimmy Fallon? I'm like, of course. Right. Not realizing that I didn't have anybody to shoot it with me on Saturday. I had my DP with me that night, but he wasn't free the next night. So what am I going to do? So I show up at the club and I have my camera equipment with me, but nobody to shoot it. And I'm getting nervous throughout the show. Like, what am I going to say to him when it's time? I don't know what to, to do. Yeah. Right? Show ends. Jimmy comes over. He goes, come on, we'll go downstairs. I'm like, okay, I still don't say anything. I'm alone. He's got to notice I'm by myself, right? <laughs> Carrying my camera equipment. There's nobody next to me. I get to the green room and I finally say, I don't know what to do because my camera guy's not here. He goes, don't worry about it. My wife's here. She's a TV producer. She'll shoot it for us. And his wife shot the interview that I did. How oh, cool is that? What a relief. Isn't huh? that amazing? I was so nervous. <laughs> I'm like, what am I going to do? Now I know. I bring a tripod and I set it up mm -hmm. and I start the camera and then I sit next to the person if I don't have somebody to shoot it. Yeah. You can't focus in and out, but at least I get cool interviews. So. Mm -hmm. I don't have to sacrifice that anymore. But the technical thing always makes me nervous because invariably I plug something into the wrong place because of nervousness. Because when you're fearful of something, you tend to manifest your fears. Yes, and that's when things you go wrong. That? That's another thing. Absolutely. Yeah. You put that out there. You put fear out there. That's why you have to be like, fuck you to the fear. Mm -hmm. And you just have to go do it. Like traveling is so hard for me, mm. but I never let it stop me. I go any place. Well, I that's go why wherever I have to go, I go. Yeah. I go with nervousness, but I go. Well, nervous people make the worst drivers. Well, it's terrible. I pull like even today, pull, you know, I pull over because you can't text and drive yeah. and look at your GPS and ask people questions. Yeah. You know, you're fucking driving a car that's thousands of pounds. It's very dangerous. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's nerve wracking, but GPS has done wonders for me. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. It's much more relaxing of an experience. I don't know what I used to do. I used to have to travel with notes. You have to make a, a left or right here because I don't know north and south. You know, you can't, <laughs> you can't show me a map. Like you sent me that pin thing on my phone. I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do with this? I don't know how to follow a map. I thought north is the way you're facing. Right, right, to right. Going right. this way, that's north. To going this way, that's north. You used I to just, uh, drive, I, used to drive into a gas station and ask someone there. That's what I did. I used to do that and hold just pray that the guy knew and then I'd make him write it for me and like don't tell me go no I say how many blocks and then I have to right. make a right or then a left and then I would and you write it down 
the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Write it down yeah. and then have to follow it and write multiple copies. Yeah, it's <laughs> and I have carbon paper in those days, carbon paper. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, this writing for other writing for other people, it's a great exercise because uh, even like I write sketches sometimes, and sometimes mm-hmm. if I don't, if I'm not, if I don't have an idea or anything, I'll pretend I'm Woody Allen, and then I'll write a Woody Allen style sketch mm-hmm. or pretend I'm someone else. So I can understand how it could be very rewarding to write comedy for other people. Yeah, I've had the opportunity to work with some some greats. I worked with Phil Hartman and Dice Clay. Dice did my stuff, and he said I was one of the few writers that ever really captured him. I mean, some of his jokes are classic. What are some that you wrote oh, for him? Oh, it's too filthy, but, you know, he's <laughs> doing it in Vegas right now about his... Uh, he's, he's doing. Is it a newer joke that you wrote for him? It's, it's something that we revived, mm-hmm. that I had written for him many years ago, and we reunited up at Sirius XM a few months ago. It was so great to see him, and he remembered exactly. I brought this old picture of me taking away a headache from him in the parking lot of Mel's Diner. You know Mel's Diner on Sunset Boulevard? absolutely. I still live in L.A. Yeah, we were hanging out, and all of a sudden he got this terrible headache, and I said, come and sit down, I'll take it away. He goes, what are you talking about? I'm like, I do energy work. That was my specialty, as I told you. So somebody took a picture of me taking away his headache on the street. He sat down on the on the curb uh-huh. in Mel's Diner, and it's me taking it away. And I how? brought that picture with him, and, and it was really cool. How do you take a headache away? Um, well, you do it with touch, and you use the warmth of your hands to open up the muscles that are in spasm. Mm-hmm. There are movements that you do, and it takes a few minutes, and then you release the headache. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very interesting process. Your head feels like it's bone, but it's really bone covered by a thin layer of muscle. Right. If you've ever had a cramp in your calf, you know how painful that is. But you can tell that it's cramp because it tightens up into a ball. Right. Right? The muscles on the top of your head can't tighten into a ball because they're they're stretched thin over the skull, Mm -hmm. but they can still cramp up, and that's what gives you the headache. When a muscle cramps, it's like closing your fist. So if there was a blood vessel and a nerve inside there, which every muscle has blood vessels and nerves in it, you you squeeze it like this, yeah. 
that's where the pounding headache comes from. So you have to reopen that muscle. And I do it with warmth in my hands. And I find trigger spots. The mm -hmm. trigger spots are, you know, painful when you touch them. I release the trigger spots. I massage the muscles of the head and of the neck. And I go inside the mouth too sometimes if it's necessary and release those muscles, which nobody does but me. Mm -hmm. And uh, Is this a trigger spots like Qigong kind of... Similar to that, mm -hmm. those are, um, I'm blanking on the word, there are uh, meridians. Yeah, yeah, the energy meridians. They're similar, but a trigger spot is also, if you walk your fingers through your scalp, you'll feel certain spots that suddenly are tender that you didn't realize they're tender, mm -hmm. and it's called a trigger spot, and it triggers the pain, and it can be referred pain. You can find a trigger spot here that's causing pain in your neck. Mm-hmm. So I realize people can't see. I'm pointing through a microphone. It's like holding pictures up to the mic so that people yeah. can see. Um, but if you release the trigger spots, the headache goes away. That makes sense because relaxation is so key to so many things. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 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 know, so it took away Dice's headache. Yeah. You got it done. Yeah, I got it done. Yeah. It was just nice that he remembered. And he's doing so many things now, man. You know, after his uh, entourage thing and then uh, Woody Allen's Blue Jasmine. Yeah, he was great in that. He's working on a tour. He's working on TV shows. He's working on uh, all kinds of things. And he's doing stand-up, right? Yeah. He's yeah. doing stand-up. And it's different uh, than it was in the 80s, right? I'm sure. I haven't seen it mm -hmm. because he's out in Vegas, I think, a lot and, and in L.A., mm -hmm. you know. But from what he told me, I mean, I'm sure he's got a whole new act. So once you started writing, to get back to that, writing for Rodney Dangerfield, that kind of was the gateway to all these other Yeah, then comedians. people started hearing about me. Right. Because Rodney was cool about that. He would tell people that I was a funny writer. And, you know, that's all it takes. Is, yeah. You know, for somebody big like that to use your stuff. And then word gets out. So then you just started writing for Joan River. For different and people. And I was writing for the Friars Roast a lot. And then I got to, when they roasted Chevy Chase for the first time, I got to work with the guys from SNL because young people hadn't done roasts in those days. Nobody knew what to do with the roast. So I was mm -hmm. kind of the liaison between the older guys and the younger guys. Milton Berle was my sponsor in the Friars Club, uh -huh, okay. which was like an amazing honor to me. Mm -hmm. I, all the years I knew him, I couldn't believe that I'm on the phone with Milton Berle. I mean, that's crazy. You yeah. know, Mr. Television. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how did you get yourself access to all these people? I mean, when I'll put a link, but. All every every seems like every comedian of the last thirty years knows you by name. <laughs> I know, isn't that weird? It's yeah. so weird. I I can't even really explain it. That was my path. I don't know. I started out not knowing one person in show business. Nobody, mm -hmm. zero. My grandfather owned a nightclub in the Bronx, and I think Burl told me that that he that he knew of it. And some of the older comics had performed there actually. So I had an interest in show business mm -hmm. from an early age because they would have performers there. And I grew up with that. We'd have family outings mm -hmm. at his nightclub, you know. And my mom was always very big into show business. She, Both my parents were very into comedy and they turned me on to it so young. But how I met all these people, it's just for being there, being out, working so hard. I worked years and years to meet people, to be at events, to meet the people that I loved. Years ago when you could go to the Catskills, you know, which was such a viable place in those days. I'd mm -hmm. be at the hotels and I'd see Ray Romano there and, you know, Rory Rosegarten was with him all the time and I would meet. And then Jackie Martling was up there in those days. I would just meet people wherever I went and I'd go to the hotels and I'd listen to the comedians and I'd offer to write for them. You know, if I felt that I could, mm -hmm. if I felt a synergy, 
Right. You know, because you can't write for everybody. After, you know, I wanted to enjoy their material first and think that they're really funny. You have to relate to them in some yeah, way. Yeah, and then I would approach them and be like, you know, I think I could write for you guys. You so know? when you wrote for Joan Rivers, did you already have these jokes or did she say, hey, Jeffrey, No, no, I had to write for her. Right. I had so to show up at her house every week. We lived near each other. So I used to go to her house. Mm-hmm. and bring her stuff. And the very first time I met her, it was a crazy story because I thought she knew about my background, mm-hmm. that I was uh, a dentist at the time, but she didn't. But I thought she did because we had met at a friar's roast. Uh, and as I recall, her representative contacted me and said, Joan wants to talk to you about writing for her, you know? And um, so she invited me to her home. And most... You know, people tend to respect doctors more than writers. Right, so I thought course. if she invited me to her home, maybe she knows about my other career, right? So, so um, anyway, I show up at her house. The doorman says to me, um, you'll have to wait a few minutes because she just sprained her ankle and she's in a lot of pain. And I was like, wow, this is cool. Maybe I can write her a prescription for painkillers and I'll be a hero to her and she'll hire me. You know, <laughs> that was like my initial thought. Then when I got up to her house, finally, she introduced me to everyone as Mr. Gurian, right? So I realized that she didn't know, mm-hmm. which is cool also because no one hires you in show business because you're a dentist. They hire you in spite of it. It's not exactly a prerequisite. Or if they you know that you to, can write prescriptions, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> it's a whole other thing. That's another kind of script to yeah. write. But anyway, we had a fabulous time. It was a really um, relaxed kind of interview thing. There was a few people there who were working for her. We sat in her library, as I recall. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I called Rory Rosegarten, and he handled the deal for me. And I wound up with a contract, and I was writing for her. And it was so fun. She was the nicest person, the sweetest person. and Fun-loving. Fun-loving. Mm-hmm. And when I saw her up at Sirius XM, you know, I think it was, she, she came, She I think she passed away in September, and this was in June. And she came up to do an unmasked interview with Ron Bennington. And I'm a regular on that show, the Bennington show. At the time, it was Ron and Fez, and now mm-hmm. it's the Bennington show because uh, Fez retired. Um they surprised her. They brought me in to meet her because they knew that we knew each other and I hadn't seen her for a while. Uh-huh. And um, she was there uh, talking about her new book, Diary of a Mad Diva, uh-huh. which she wrote with Larry Amaros. You know Larry? I know the name. He's a comedy writer. He's a, he's a great writer. He, and he tours with Barry Manilow. And he's, he's a funny guy. We're friends for many years. And so he worked on that book with her. And she knew of my book. I had my book with me. Mm-hmm. And so I was asking her questions about her book, and she was asking me questions about my book. And I said to her, John, I'll give you a copy of the book. Yeah. And she said, absolutely not. She said, no, I want to buy a copy. She mm-hmm. goes, I want to support you in the book. I don't want it for free. And that's I cool. said, that, that's the kind of person she was. She was so kind. And she had her assistant come and take a picture of the cover of my book so she could order it. Oh, that's so cool. That's the kind of... She was a very kind, caring person. Was it this book that you brought today? Yeah, that I brought for you. Was that a perfect segue? Yeah, it was an amazing amazing segue. It's called Make Them Laugh. Mm -hmm. Can you hold that up to the mic? Yes, I'm holding it up. Can't you see? (laughs) And uh, yeah, it's the story of the comic strip, the Mm -hmm. legendary club on 81st and 2nd. That's still there. It opened in 76, and it's where Eddie Murphy started and Mm -hmm. where Eddie discovered Chris Rock. In 1986. Did you, know? you spend a lot of time there? I spent four years there, like almost day and night, you know. And, uh, you know, 
Bud Friedman opened the Improv in 63 mm -hmm. as a coffee shop, basically, a coffee house. It, it didn't start as a comedy club. For the first couple of years, they had singers and actors and comedians. Mm -hmm. And then he realized that more people were coming for the comics, and he turned it into the world's first comedy club ever. Uh -huh. And it wasn't until the end of 72 that Rick Newman opened Catch a Rising Star, mm -hmm. which at the time was on 76th and 1st. It was right near where I was living when I moved to Manhattan. And uh, so a long time went by when the only comedy club in New York was uh, the Improv, right. you know, and then Catch. And then the third one was when Richie Tinkin opened the comic strip uh, on in 1976. And a f about two weeks after it opened, uh, Jerry Seinfeld walked into audition. Two weeks after it opened, he walked in. It opened, in. yeah, wow. yeah. And uh, we, we have his audition slip is copied in the book cool you know th there's a lot of very cool old pictures but um in those days they rated you when you came in to perform and they on jerry's slip they wrote good definitely invite back on monday uh-huh he came in on a friday and i think it was uh it was about two weeks after they opened yeah do you know then, how long he had been doing stand-up at that point I don't remember, but he st he spent his uh, next four years there. He left for L.A. in 1980. So mm -hmm. from 1976 to 1980, that was his home club. Right. And he would go back and forth between Catch and The Strip. But he wore his comic strip T-shirt, and they used to feed the guys hamburgers in those days. Mm -hmm. and that was his home, and that's where he got friendly with George Wallace, and they became roommates, and he and Larry Miller became best friends. And, uh, you know, they lived on West 71st Street together how, when you think about those times and then you, you're still very active in the scene how would you say things have changed well first of all there's so many more comedians these days than there were then i mean it's ridiculous there's mm -hmm. thousands of comedians everybody you meet is a stand-up comedian these days no it's, matter where you go it's very in right now yeah more so than ever and just seems to be building i look online and i see clubs filled with people that i've never heard of and mm -hmm. i go there and a lot of them are funny mm -hmm. you know um a lot of them are just talking about going to the bathroom which is a pet peeve of mine right yeah <laughs> a lot of open mics you hear the, the topics that they're talking about and if i had a club i'd be like you can't do that here yeah we just you'd have to talk about something clever or you can't perform here i would just that's how i feel i i respect comedy too much it can't all be about just going to the bathroom if you're not going to be funny at least please be interesting yeah right? exactly yeah i mean that's how i feel you know well and, i think it's, so. it's part of society now where we live in a place where we sh share everything so there are i think more multitaskers like we were talking about earlier so within that oh well uh you know i am a musician or a writer you know what i'm a stand-up too and because it's, I'm going to share everything on Facebook, I'm also going to share my bathroom jokes on stage. I don't know what it is, but whatever mm -hmm. it is, it's disturbing to me. Because if I'm out with a girl at a show, I don't want to hear that about some guy going to the bathroom. It's not funny to me. It's, not, it's, it's ugly stuff, you know. And a lot of comics think, because it, you know, there's this thing in comedy, it's all been done, everything's been said, there's nothing new to say. say me too, I hate that too. Because... Yeah. There are clever ways of saying things, but, you know, it just, I find it disturbing that mm -hmm. that's the topic that most people want to dwell on, and some of them are going to it in depth, and I just don't think it's necessary. So I remember the early days when I saw Jerry and Paul Reiser performing, you know, at the old Carolines on 28th Street, and mm -hmm. like, I think it was 8th Avenue, 
27th and 8th, something like that, before she moved to the seaport. You know, it wasn't always on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And that was her first club. And uh, they all were clean. Right. You know? They were clean in those days. And uh, it was a different world. You know, comedy was different. Do you uh, have a, a feeling, or I won't say judgment because it sounds harsh, but do you have a preference to clean or dirty? No, nah, I work both ways, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it hard to be squeaky clean working in clubs. Mm-hmm. The audience seems to demand it. And I don't like to say, like, I pander to an audience. But when you're on stage, you want to get laughs. Yeah. And I throw in an F-bomb every once in a while when I feel it's indicated. Right. That's about I mean, I don't talk about things that I find unpleasant. I don't, you know... Um, well, I know Jerry Seinfeld's uh, philosophy on it, that if you need it, it's a crutch. Yeah, and he's never needed to use it, mm-hmm. and it, it certainly worked out well for him. Yeah, but you then know, you think, I think about Larry the- David, too, you know, Larry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really know him in those days. I've only met him in recent years, but there was a great story uh, that he used to, when he didn't like the way the audience was responding to his material, that he would throw the microphone down on the ground and storm off the stage. All right. And Richie Tinkin told me that one night... They glued the microphone into the stand <laughs> so he couldn't get it out. <laughs> I told him that story. He said he didn't remember that, but Richie remembers it very clearly. Um, but then I think about Louis C.K. and so much of his stuff isn't just like F-bombs or whatever. It's just filthy. Yeah. Well, and he's a more of a modern comic. He's always evolving. Mm-hmm. You know, his show is on now as opposed to Seinfeld that was on. When did it end? In 1998. Maybe. Right. You know, it's a long time ago already. Yeah. And comedy changes, which is It changed weird. a lot, you know? And so, you know, I don't judge somebody like that. L- Louis is amazing, you know? Um, mm-hmm. It's just like young guys coming up who feel that they need to do that kind of stuff. Louis is a genius, so he's funny. So mm-hmm. he makes everything funny. These new guys don't make it funny. They just make it ugly. Right. And I'm thinking, so if you're starting that way, you know, if that's the limit of your creativity, mm-hmm. you know, Elementary school kids make fun of going to the bathroom. Right. You're supposed to outgrow that. One thing I see now is uh, that maybe Louis C.K. started is this, like, sometimes I can't tell if a show is a comedy show or or if it's a therapy group. People get up there and they just talk about their life, like Louis C.K. does, but they don't realize that his act is very crafted and there's punchlines and jokes and pauses and... It's very difficult sometimes watching. Uh, well, he comes up on stage with with notes sometimes when he's working out stuff. But yeah. a lot of you know, a lot of people want to do stream of consciousness, and you're right; they take the most personal aspects of their lives, and they talk about it on stage. Mm-hmm. Now, there's the, the you know the anti slut shaming, right? Thing. I love Corinne Fisher and Christina Hutchinson. Mm-hmm. They have the podcast Guys We Fucked. Yeah. Yeah, years ago you couldn't do something like that, and it's gone international. They mm-hmm. blew up. They're doing yeah. it at the New York Comedy Festival. I've done the show. It was great. We yeah. talked about sexual healing. It was a very popular segment. I got incredible feedback, mostly from women, too, who really liked what I was saying, you know? And uh, so Amy Schumer is very proud. She owns her power as a woman, mm-hmm. you know? And she's so popular now, which is so great. And uh, a lot of girls like that, there are porn stars now who are doing comedy. You know, right. Aaliyah yeah. Janine, an ex-porn star, and uh, Lisa Ann, mm-hmm. who's doing that paid or pain mm-hmm. at New York Comedy Club. And uh, well, I think it's comedy is very stand-up is very in fashion right now. Yeah, everybody wants to do it. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you know, when young comics are doing this stuff, their friends are there laughing 
for them. They're supporting them. No one has the courage to say, because it's a hard thing, and I don't think I could do it either. No one has the courage to say, that's not funny, man. Right. Don't right. do that. That's yeah. not funny. Yeah. So they laugh to support each other. The guy on stage thinks he's funny and just keeps doing that. Sometimes friends laugh because they're nervous for their friend, too. Yeah, look, I understand that. I would yeah. want people to do the same thing for me, you mm -hmm. know, to support you. It's really hard being up on stage. It's crazy. You know, no other... There's no other performance. Like, we always say, you know, if you're a singer, you go up on stage, people will applaud politely, whether they like your song or not. But with yes, comedy, much either they laugh or they don't laugh. Yeah. It's hardly anybody's laughing hysterically to be polite. I've said that before. I think uh, as a stand-up, I get, I get a much more honest feedback than as a musician. Yeah, your life's on the line, man, when you go on stage, you know? It's either funny or not funny, you know? And you know right away. Mm -hmm. What's weird is that you could do the same material on several nights, and some nights people will be laughing hysterically, and other yep. nights people will be fucking humming, and you're like, what happened? Yeah, the variable is more. The variable, the energy in the room, what happened to them that day, what went on the news, who knows? This, the you know, the stand-up before could have changed the, the atmosphere. Right. Know? Yeah. I read a book once, I think it was by Franklin Ajay, and he, where, he, where he talked about how every comic has to experience bombing, mm -hmm. which is such a hard thing to experience. But, you know, do you know the, the story about Ray Romano? It's in my book that he started out his career as Jackie Roberts. You ever hear that story? No. Okay. So in the days when Ray first started, he was uh, selling futons. You mm -hmm. know, his best friend had a futon business and he went to... Uh, the improv, because he wanted to do comedy. And in those days, they had a lottery where they'd pick your name out of a hat. But so many people would show up, so they could only use a certain number of names. So hey, to, He signed up twice, didn't he? To double his chances, <laughs> he brought a friend with him. Mm -hmm. But he couldn't find a guy, so he brought a girl. So he said to her, look, you can't use your name. I can't go up under a girl's name. Pick an androgynous name. Right. If they call your name, I'll go up. So she picks Jackie Roberts. Mm -hmm. Of course, they pick that name out of the hat. Mm -hmm. He goes on stage and passes the audition. So now he has to be Jackie Roberts because he can't <laughs> tell Silver Friedman that he lied because he's afraid that they won't let him perform there anymore. Right. So for the first two or three months of his career, he said he went on stage as Jackie Roberts. Then one night, and he said he had beginner's luck because he was doing very well. Mm -hmm. Then one night, he bombed. Yeah. And he said he developed stage fright, and he didn't go back on stage again for about two years. Wow. Two years. He said he went back to selling futons, but it was eating away at him that he wanted to perform. And, mm -hmm. and then when he came back two years later, he came back to the comic strip, and he came back as Ray Romano. And that's what made his career. And that's when he didn't get picked. That's where he met Rory Rosegarten, <laughs> who became his manager and still is to this day. Mm -hmm. All these years later, 35, almost 40 years later. It's almost like you driving up to SNL uh, lying that you had an appointment. With Lorne Michaels. Yeah. Yes, sometimes, exactly. I think sometimes you got to do what you... Everyone lies on their resume, right? When you're a kid, you can do that. When mm -hmm. you're an adult then you're just creepy like it's weird <laughs> it's weird you know what i mean in those days you could do it these like i said there was no security it was right. a kind of world nobody was blowing shit up nobody yeah. was afraid of terrorists so security wasn't that tight mm -hmm. you know it was it was a whole different world man yeah and nowadays i mean you have direct access to people if they check their Twitter or Facebook or whatever, but there's just so much more noise to cut through. Yeah, it's hard. I remember even when I met Woody Allen the first time, you know, it was like, I knew even then, I was just a kid, and but I knew if you want to meet a guy, 
most men don't go to the theater hoping to meet other men. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like, how do you show them you're sane? You know, you have to show someone that you're sane. You could be a lunatic. They yeah. don't who know who you are. So sure. I was sending notes backstage months before. He was in a play called Play It Against Sam with Tony Roberts. I love that one. That's one of my favorite ones of his movies, actually. And I started sending notes backstage as if I knew him. On the back of my dental school card, mm -hmm. I'd say, uh, Woody, it's Jeffrey. I haven't seen you in a long time. I'm coming to see the show. I'll come backstage and I'm bringing my cardboard thumb. I thought I had to say like weird shit so he would get it because his <laughs> head was so crazy. It's like when I spent an evening with Salvador Dali, I knew I couldn't freak him out. So I was sending these weird notes to to woody and i sent them periodically whenever i came in from school i would drop a note with the stage manager mm -hmm. so i came up with this concept that if you want to prove to someone that you're sane you either wear a tie or you bring a pretty girl with you yes well i didn't have a tie and i only knew one pretty girl <laughs> she hated me no <laughs> she hated me and this was a girl who we just broken up and she wanted nothing to do with me and i begged her i said please come with me we're going to meet Woody Allen. Mm -hmm. And she knew how much I loved Woody, so she came with me. And um, I didn't even know enough to wait till after the show. I told him I'm coming back during intermission. That night, as I, I said, Woody, I'm here, and I'll see you during intermission. Uh -huh. I sent this card, right? So intermission comes, and I I try to chicken out. I'm too nervous to go. She goes, you can't chicken out. You made me come. You got to go backstage and <laughs> yeah. do this. So. All right, so I go to the stage door, and I open the stage door, and the stage manager is not in his seat. There's nobody there. And I remember I grab her hand, and we run up the stairs, and I went to the roof. I went to the wrong place. So I come back down. The stage manager's there. He says, can I help you? And I say, Woody is expecting me. And he says, go right in. There was no question, no, but who are you? No, no one asked anything in those days. Yeah. Go right in. So I go to his dressing room, and it's empty. He's in Tony Roberts' dressing room with the entire cast. They're all hanging out in there. And now I'm really nervous. And she goes, you have to do this. Mm -hmm. So I go up to the door of the dressing room, and I remember like it was yesterday. I peek into the room. He's sitting on a couch on the other side of the room facing me. Mm -hmm. And I go like this to him. I crook my finger, and I call him over like this. And he's like, me? Like this? Yeah. And I said, yes, you. I'm nodding my head. And he comes over, and he's actually holding my card. Uh -huh. And he says to me, you must be Jeff. And at that point, I lost it. You know what it's like when you're a kid and you're meeting your idol? Yeah. I got so excited. I started saying stupid shit to him like, let's open up a day camp and throw winter clothes at people. <laughs> said, you're just trying to impress him. I'm like, let's walk low like we used to in Europe. Right. And he looks at the girl I'm with. He goes, this guy's a fucking nut. Just like that. <laughs> and I started, to, I tried to calm down a little and I told him like I write comedy and everyone says I write just like you and I really wanted to show you my stuff and he's like he goes listen I'm I'm right in the middle of a show he mm -hmm. goes do you think you could come back tomorrow night like mm -hmm. I'm sorry I'm much too busy <laughs> I'm like of course I'll come back tomorrow night it was right. like the Jimmy Fallon thing like, can you come back tomorrow night I'm like yeah I'll be here so I begged the same girl because I didn't have any confidence in myself that I had thought it was whoever I was with on my arm right right I was so stupid in those days and Anyway, I come back the next night and he meets me after the show and we sit in his dressing room and he reads all my stuff. And I remember I had like scraps of paper in an envelope. It wasn't like I had scripts or anything and little ideas like, you know, which eventually turned into a series of films I did called The Men Who Series. It was about men who do very unusual things, uh -huh. like men who take a pitchfork to the movies and men who enjoy Latin dancing with tools. Uh -huh. I have a guy who does the tango with a wrench that is unbelievable. 
So I showed him all this stuff, and he said to me, it's really very visual, and you should really think of making a film out of it. Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, expected him to say, Jeffrey, this is the most amazing stuff I've ever seen. Right. Let's make movies together. Yeah. That didn't happen. But um, it's so funny because years later, I became friendly with Jack Rollins, his longtime manager who mm-hmm. managed Robin Williams and Billy Crystal, and, mm-hmm. and uh, who said to me, when he heard that story, he goes, Woody must have really seen something in you because it wasn't really his nature to do that kind of stuff. And, you know, and then I wrote this movie called I Am Woody about a mob boss who's obsessed with Woody Allen, uh-huh. a violent mob boss who's a Woody Allen fan. And he survives a mob hit and he comes out of it with amnesia. And this now is he, on YouTube. Yeah. And yeah. now he really thinks he's Woody Allen, but he's six foot five and 300 pounds. Yeah. He becomes afraid of his own men because he thinks he's small and thin and <laughs> he doesn't know he's a gangster and they, he won't go to the sit down. They have to convince him to go by telling him that it's a party to raise money for his new movie. Right. So, uh, I sent that script to Jack Rollins, hoping that Woody would get behind the project. And Jack called me and he said to me, he goes, it's a funny script. It's great. He goes, there are actually lines in here that Woody could have written himself, mm-hmm. but I can't show it to him. And he couldn't tell me why, whatever the reason was. He goes, it's, it's great. And maybe just have, too, too close to home. Too I don't know. He wouldn't explain it and I couldn't get it out of him. But just look, just talking to Jack Rowland, just being in his presence. I used to be up in his office all the time. That's how I met Billy Crystal originally. Mm-hmm. And in that book, Make Him Laugh, there's a picture of me and Billy Crystal where he's pointing to his teeth uh-huh. because he remembered my background. So all this, all all the while, you're still practicing dentistry during the day. In those early days, yeah. When yeah. Jack Rowland sent me up to meet Herb Sargent at Saturday Night Live and I was in practice, you know. And Jack thought that they should do a sitcom based on my story about a dentist in show business. And he thought Billy Crystal would be perfect to play me. So were your days pretty much during the day, you're practicing dentistry. And at night, running around to comedy clubs, meeting people and writing jokes. That is, you make the day sound very full. <laughs> it was a very full day. It was a very crazy day. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a fun and interesting thing, but um, it was hard on my marriage, you know, because mm. my wife would be like, where are you going all the time? You know, Wednesdays was my comedy day in Manhattan. Wednesdays, I was, it was my day off. Mm-hmm. And I would go in and just meeting people and have meetings and talking to people and just, you know, and then, weeknights I, I guess weekends i would also go to shows and mm-hmm. meet people and just you know how hard it is you know what it's like breaking into comedy it's crazy yeah especially with millions of people there's no rules yeah there's no rules mm-hmm. you just do what you think you should do mm-hmm. and in those days i had a lot of courage i had to do outrageous things and i would stay on i would inconvenience myself god i don't know I waited for hours to meet certain people in the cold. I would just do whatever I had to do right, to try to get someone to look at my stuff. Now, when did you start actually performing? So I can imagine as a stutterer, the writing is a safe place. Yeah, I only started performing maybe, you know, on a regular basis within just the last few years. But maybe the first time I went on stage, I think Mike Buschetti was there the night I first went up. I think it was at the old New York Comedy Club, mm-hmm. maybe about eight years ago. So, okay, so something like that. W- within the last ten years, you know, I would perform sporadically, mm-hmm. 
you know stand up is impossible to perform sporadically it's like if you take a week off you're starting over again it is and it isn't i mean it depends there are people that i've spoken to who don't do it that often it's much better the more you go up the better yeah there's no question about that Mm -hmm. it's become exciting and i'm going up a few times a week now i'm I'm going to be headlining a broadway comedy on november 12th yeah i'm really enjoying it more and more Mm -hmm. um because I'm working on a lot of new stuff and it's a great place to, to work it in, you know, and it's so hard when you have stuff that's working to work in new jokes and try them out. It's the but, best. But it's very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. And I'm really enjoying it more than I ever did. Yeah. We had, um, Ashley, uh, well, what, Ashley, what's her last name? Oh God. I'm terrible. What's her last name? Ashley Morse. Yeah. Ashley Morris on, and, uh, Sorry, Ashley, but uh, she's a stand-up and an actress. And I um, did a show with her recently. I think she did something for wounded veterans. Yes, yes. And I did that show with her. Yeah, I'm doing a lot. I did your show, which was a really fun show. Mm-hmm. Then it's had high fi right? Yeah, high fi Yeah. But we had an interesting part of the conversation was that uh, she was talking about why she does stand-up, mm-hmm. and for her, it's a, a lot about making about healing people, making people feel better. And I told her then, and I still remind myself of that, that the better part of me, that's why I'm getting up there. Because if I get up on stage, for me, to pad my ego, it's not very rewarding. I don't really, it's almost, it, it, it doesn't help me. But if I get up trying to make people laugh, thinking it's going to make them feel better, it's just better for the whole room and better for everybody. That's why you were talking about mind over matter. That's a thought. You know, that is a thought. That's a thought that, that you create because you're still going to perform the same way, whether you take it for you or you take it for the audience that you're bringing something to them. Yeah. You're still saying your jokes in the same way. So it, it, it's an interesting thought that you're going to flip it and say, I want to do this for you guys. Right. I may get something out of it, whatever. It feels good when you're making people laugh, but it's, it's an interesting thought. Yeah. And I'm bringing it up. Because I don't want to put you on the spot, but you're a healer as well. And now you're performing. And laughter is the best. It's the greatest method. healing. And yeah. that's how I look at it that, it. that it's interesting that it came back to that, that, that combination of things. Because mm-hmm. that's really all I want to do is just put positive energy out to the universe. And I created a pilot for Sirius for radio. And I don't know what will happen with it, but it's called The Happiness Show. Mm-hmm. And I brought in Colin Quinn and Susie Essman and Lisa Lampanelli were my three guests. Uh, all people who sometimes have like tough stage personas, but I know them to be kind and wonderful people. Yeah. And it's about creating happiness and what to do in your life to make yourself happy. Mm-hmm. Because I want to have a place where people can tune in wherever they whenever they want and they're always going to hear something positive mm-hmm. you know when when you wake up in the morning you shouldn't listen to the news all you hear is death and destruction and horrible stuff and right. it's a bad way to start your day so i want people to have a safe place to come to where they can hear positive things mm-hmm. and so i did this pilot and sirius helped me with it fez did a great introduction they created a uh uh, a theme song for me about happiness cool. with all my favorite songs about happiness. And it was mm-hmm. a, a great, I have a, a 20 minute pilot that um, I'm shopping around, you know, and with great people in it. I mean, you can't do better than Colin Quinn, Susie Essman and Lisa Lampanelli. It's a 
show or radio? <clears throat> it's a radio show. Radio show. Yeah. Cool. And where I'm talking to them about happiness and what they do to bring happiness into their own lives. Doesn't it go both ways, though? Sometimes, like, when you're heartbroken, you want to hear a sad song. Not me. <laughs> no. Some people, I'm sure, do. There yeah. are people who think of things in all different ways. No, I only want to... I live in a fantasy where I just want to hear happy things and I uh -huh. teach people to create a happiness center for themselves. My place is all like white, light things make me happy. I live in a very light place. My carpeting is white, my piano is white, my mm -hmm. car is white, and it's I have balloons and crayons all over my house, toys, and it looks like a child's place. Like People <laughs> would think children live there, and um, but that's what makes me happy. Mm -hmm. And I think that people need to do that, that you put up... Surround yourself with things that make you smile. Right. Wherever you look, you should see something that has a nice memory attached to it. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that thing that people say you need to know sadness in order to know happiness. I don't want to be happy because someone else is miserable and I have to tell myself, oh, look at that poor soul. Right. I should be grateful for what I have. I want to just be grateful on my own without needing to see that. Mm-hmm. And as a human being, I often slip into, you know, self-pity and wishing things but may, may I ask in, in your own case your struggles of being a, a stutterer and self-doubt and your anxieties as a child coming being able to get over that has probably I think would make you a wiser happier person because you know where you can go in your own darkness and, and fears well that that thing in particular to me is one of my greatest accomplishments that I was able to conquer stuttering it's really a, a horrible affliction to me. And I'm so grateful that I don't have to live with that anymore. And that I use my voice in everything that I do, really. You know, whether it's TV or radio or anything. I'm always speaking, you know, or when I was in practice or when I was working with people. Everything to me is about communication. It's very mm -hmm. important to me. So, yeah, I mean, it's helped me in innumerable ways. But there are times everyone has sad times. Some days you just feel down. The more sensitive you are, the more in tune you are with your surroundings, the more you're going to feel uncomfortable on certain days. I don't even know why. I'm an empath. Mm -hmm. I feel what other people feel, which makes me very effective as a healer because mm -hmm. I can be very caring. I care for strangers the way I would care for someone that I know very well. Mm -hmm. And I'm capable of doing that. But it can work against you because your sensitivity can often feel like a burden right? instead of a strength. It can um, feel like a weakness because the world will try to take advantage of you because of it. Many people take kindness for weakness. Yeah. And it's hard, but you can't change your basic nature if that's who you are. You just have to try and eliminate people who don't honor your sensitivity. Yeah, I think I'm similar to you in that way. And I think that's why living in New York City is good for me because you're surrounded by horrible things. So in a way, it's making me more... Little, little it tougher. toughens you up a little bit, but but still, but that soft, sensitive part is still always there. Mm -hmm. And I think people respond to that well. I think they understand it. They need it. Like people say that my interviews, uh, people sit down and they talk to me. Mm -hmm. You know, and you if you see my interviews, and if you don't mind, I'll say it's Comedy Matters TV on YouTube. Mm -hmm. We just passed like a, a million views a couple of months ago. I like saw that. That's a million great. thirty thousand views, something like that, and. Yeah, and so people have said that that maybe that's the energy that makes them feel comfortable. So when they sit down, they don't 
they feel like they can just talk about stuff and open up and we laugh and it, it's not really an interview it's a conversation kind of like what we're doing here exactly yeah. you know except that when you're doing it on a red carpet you don't have much time and it's mm -hmm. really very tense yeah very hard to do stuff on a red carpet sure because there's no time for dead air and you're thinking on your feet and it's all improv it's nothing you can script and it's not the place for intimacy there's cameras and it's hard and but but i want to always try to make it personal mm -hmm. you know and it helps if i know the people and they stop off and talk to me while their publicists are pulling them away because that's what publicists do right well that's They, why we do this podcast it's really not for us but it's for hopefully people that listen they get something out of it and yeah. i'm so glad the stuttering came up me too man yeah. it's great that we had an opportunity to talk about so many different things Mm -hmm. I feel like we can keep going and talk forever. Probably. But yeah. I'm sure that you we have to go to sleep at some point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can have a part two at some point. That's true, we can. Yeah, that would be awesome, man. Do you feel like uh, there's anything that we missed that's important? I mean, your healing is really important, and the stuttering overcoming that is really, really admirable. Well, thanks. Well, you know what? I would like to, to tell people... If any of these things are interesting, they're all on my website. Mm -hmm. And if you don't mind, I'll give out my site. Uh, Please do. It's either jeffreygurian.com, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. For some reason, people are misspelling Jeffrey these days. It drives me that, crazy. That they sounds do like e -R -Y. The, that's the easier of the names to spell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you would think, right? Yeah. There was a time you didn't have to tell that, but it's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-G-U-R-I-A-N as in Nancy. So it's uh, jeffreygurian.com or comedymatterstv.com. We'll take you to the same place. And then my channel on YouTube will have interviews with all of your favorite comedians. It's, it, I, it's an inside look at the comedy world. And uh, that's youtube.com slash Gurian News Network. All one word, Gurian News Network. Um, the book is called Make Them Laugh. It's mm -hmm. on Amazon. You can also see it on my site. Um, you have a new book coming out? On Twitter. Yeah. I do, yeah. It's called Man Robs Bank with His Chin. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a it's a compilation of stories. I used to write for Weekly World News, and I love silly, silly humor is my favorite. So yeah, grandma's rolling up their stockings. I was a, I was a writer reporter, and it's like you know tap dancing for the criminally insane and. Uh, Man paints replica of the Sistine Chapel with his beard, which you can't do. You don't have the kind of beard that's good for painting. Maybe just like a little soft. Yeah, no, this is... You a, need a long beard for painting that you could dip in the paint, and then you need very strong neck muscles to paint the Sistine yeah, this Chapel. Yeah, I'm too busy to shave beard. Yeah, that's all this yeah, is. This is, but it's all about beard painting, and uh, a lot of... It's, it's billed as unusual stories missed by mainstream media, mm. which is why GNN, which is Gurian News Network, the logo of my news network is all the news that's fit to dance to. <laughs> and so it's very bizarre news and it's a whole book and it should be out hopefully within a month or so. I have the book. They're just working on the layout mm -hmm. and it'll be available online and I'll have to come back on and tell you when, but if you awesome. check it out. Man robs bank with his chin and other unusual stories missed by mainstream media. So that's about it. And I'm headlining Broadway Comedy on November 12th. So come out and support. Mm -hmm. and otherwise, you'll see me at other shows around town. I don't have a real schedule. Just like people ask me to do their shows. And I'm like, absolutely. And yeah. I'm just, I just come out, you know, so. Yeah. Well, uh, your website is the portal, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. The website is the important thing. Yeah. Follow me on Twitter at Jeffrey Gurian. Instagram is the same. Mm -hmm. Everybody these days, you have to have a million social media references. Oh, right? it's so much. It's right? crazy. Yeah. yeah. 